We are continuing in our series, When in Rome. Just some background on this text. Christians from the Jewish background are traveling into Philippi, and they have been advocating for the Gentile Christians to adopt the Mosaic law as their form of righteousness. Paul views these men and their practices as unchristian, and he uses his life as a counterexample by citing his gains according to their standards are actually losses. The question this text asks today is, where do you find your worth? What do you put confidence in in your life? What do you value most? If you had a scale that was set out that measured what was most important to you, what would be there? The world tempts us to define ourselves by our wealth, by our strength, by our talent, by our skills, by our accomplishments. But as you guys heard when we sung our theme song, and I'm looking at it to be the theme song of 180 Youth, My Worth is Not in What I Own, the chorus goes, I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him, no other. My soul is satisfied in him alone. This is what this text brings to us today. Let's look at verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul is warning the group that their spiritual well-being is at stake. He had addressed this point in other uh, places uh, throughout Philippians and to other churches in different letters. But specifically, what he wanted to address is don't put your heritage or your achievements as your confidence in your relationship with God. Rather, put your faith in Christ alone. So he thought it was important to remind them again because this problem would persist. His purpose was to keep their foundation in their life, their faith, free from the cracks of weakness that developed throughout their churches. And so Paul starts off with startling words in verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. That word look out could also be translated as beware, beware the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I don't want you to think when he talks to them about dogs that this is like your pet dog. This isn't the case. You see, Jews often describe the Gentiles as dogs. And so Paul now is applying this term that the Jews would use against the Gentiles. He's using it now to say that the Judaizers are a pack of ravenous dogs roaming about the countryside trying to devour the leftovers. They were scavengers that were trying to pluck people from their faith because they were going to put their confidence in something other than God. Now, not only does he call them dogs and evildoers, he also calls them mutilators of the flesh. It's the same root of the word used in our passage two other times, circumcision, which is used also in verse 3 and verse 5. These dogs, these evildoers, saw circumcision as a requirement for their own man-made relationship with God. They took pride in it. You see, circumcision was essential to the Jewish people, beginning with Abraham. 
It was the distinguishing mark of the covenant. Over the time, the Jews would refer to it as themselves as the circumcised. Every Jewish boy on the eighth day would be circumcised. And God gave Abraham the symbol to graphically illustrate man's depravity for man passes along his fallen sinful flesh through the act of procreation, passing on fallen nature to the next generation. So circumcision was a symbol picturing the cleansing of sin at the deepest part. Over the centuries, the Jewish people lost the meaning and it just became a symbol. They didn't show a genuine transformation and and it hadn't taken place in their heart. So Paul has a major problem with them that they missed the point. And he says in verse 3, who's the real circumcision? Verse 3, for we, he's including himself and the Christians in Philippi, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Both himself, a former Pharisee, and the church, who were most likely all Gentile Christians, they were actually the true part of the family of God, the truly circumcised. Now, the false teachers, those Judaizers, they would have been dismayed. Wait, that's what Paul's saying? He's talking about us this way? He, but he, you guys need to understand, circumcision always had to do with the heart. It always was about a heart transformation, not just an external symbol. It was an internal transformation. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. It was this symbol of God and man, and they had turned it into a stumbling block. So who were the circumcised? It says later in the verse, those who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Those who worship God first, those who brag about Jesus the most, and those who trust in themselves the least. Notice Paul states three times where their confidence in the flesh was found. You'll see it at the end of verse 3 and twice in verse 4. And now he wants them to recalculate their value as a Judaizer. He's saying, hey, your outward symbol, it did not make you good with God. You thought that you could just have that and you'd be okay? Notice what he writes in verse 4 and 6. Though I myself may have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so right now what Paul is going to do is he's going to go through his hereditary and he's going to list off his moral achievements and he's going to say to them, I have a superior stock than you all. He's saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, Paul, his former name was Saul. Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He's saying he's from royalty. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews and has a law of Pharisee one of the few thousands of Pharisees that would scrupulously live according to the law, according to his hereditary, he was the top notch. And then look at him saying his moral achievement. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. You see, he would glory in that 
he would be willing to go and kill for God. He was willing to take it to that level to fight for God. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. It wasn't that he was saying that he was perfect, but he was saying that he did his best to keep all the Old Testament law, all the commandments. So Paul's saying, look at my resume. Look at my bloodline. Look at everything that I did. And he could say I was righteous. But remember, righteousness, the true circumcision, they worship God first. They brag about Christ the most and they trust in themselves the least. So in Paul's description, those who are truly circumcised, what do we get from it? What's the question for us today? And what do we place our confidence in? In whom do you and I glory and boast in? What do we value the most? Though we know and we can confess that we receive God's favor through Christ alone, do we live a different way as if our spiritual achievements are a badge of honor? We may never say it out loud, but at times it screams loudly through our actions that we think that we are the righteous. How do we do it? Look at examples. Someone can say, well, look at my kids, how quiet they are in their service. Do you see those kids running around all the time? I can't believe they do that. They must not be doing what they're doing. Oh, me and my wife, we follow God's word. We don't spare the rod. My kids are doing good. We elevate ourselves and we decrease others or others things. Oh, look at all the ministries that I'm involved in. I'm involved in the choir. I'm doing a wanna. Maybe I'm in youth group, whatever it may be. I'm involved in this. Every time the church doors are open, I'm here. Look at me. Oh, that person, the struggles in their life, they don't love God as much as I do. We may not say it with our lips, but our actions. Or this may, you may be surprised, but people actually say this and think this. Wow, my spouse would be hopeless without me. I mean, I'm such a good partner. They should be lucky to have me. Now, you, you, we laugh at this, but we don't realize that through our actions, we live this way. In the way that we respond to difficulties, we act this way. We don't realize that we have easily fallen into the trap and we've put our own confidence in our flesh, and especially in the community of believers. You see, we declare, look at my joy. Look at my selflessness. We, we even, when we're trying to say we're being humble, we humble brag about ourselves and say, do you see what I'm doing for it? Do you see what I'm? It, this can trickle in. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't think that when we read this text that Paul is talking about someone else that it isn't us. You and I can be Judaizers. You and I can fall into this trap. You and I can have a quest in our heart to boost our self-esteem by putting down others and elevating ourselves. This can happen. But what Paul does throughout this chapter and what we're going to see is that what was gain actually turns into a loss and what was loss actually turns into a gain. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I'd suffered the loss 
of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is rejecting his status. He's rejecting his pedigree. He's rejecting his resume. He's rejecting his achievements. And what he's doing in the title of my message is he's recalculating his values. You see that word count? It means a completed evaluation with present effects. No more analysis is needed. Paul didn't need to Paul did an audit of his life and found that when he calculated, his net gains were actually losses, and his net losses were actually gains. Whatever he gained, it was worthless. It was meaningless. And notice, the word loss is used two other times to contrast this. He initially saw his former life as gain, then he recalculated, and it's loss. And then in verse 8, he says it wasn't even gain. Rather, everything was a loss compared to the surpassing worth And then he concludes and asks and says he suffered the loss of all things and counts them as rubbish. What is rubbish? Rubbish is the thing that I had to change yesterday when Amanda was at a birthday party and that was Xavier's diaper. Dung. The thing that I almost had a heart attack for him like, oh, my goodness, what is this kid eating? That is what Paul is saying that his righteousness, his status, his achievement it's a stinky diaper. That's what it is. Can, can you believe this? He's saying that when he did the appraisal, they were about his righteousness by his works were waste compared to Christ's righteousness. He goes from seeing his accolades, his heritage as loss. You see, those who are in Christ, they recognize that their earthly gains and the end are meaningless. Their earthly gains don't amount to anything in the end. Back in 2019, a family brought a chess piece to an auction house in England. And you see what happens sometimes is people have things that they think are meaningless, but they actually turn into being meaningful. And this chess piece that they brought, their grandfather had bought 55 years earlier for the big price of $6, okay? And this was just sitting in the house. They wondered if this piece had value, so they brought it in to be inspected. And what they didn't know, that in 1831, a medieval chessboard with chess pieces made out of walrus ivory was found. However, there were five missing pieces left. That grandfather had purchased one of those pieces 55 years prior, and they didn't recognize that this piece was worth $1.2 million. $1.2 million. $6, $1.2 million. Oh, Grandpa, I'm your favorite, right? Like, you know, like you and I, we've been connecting, and I would say that to him. $6, $1.2 million. Worthless, almost priceless. A loss, I'm just going to throw it out, gain. How do you think they lived now knowing that it was worthwhile? How do you think they lived their life when they came back and found out that it was valued at $1.2 million? Do you think they told their friends and said, can you believe what I have, that they were excited about it, calling their family members and telling them, look at what I have? Do you think they would prize this possession, that they would let their little kids play around with this piece? You know, it's just, you know, just out on the counter for No, they, they would lock it away. Christians, do you recognize that we've gained, what we've gained in our relationship 
is a value? That we have a Savior that's flipped the status quo of our day? That his loss was our gain? Do we, do we shout out? Are we exclaiming, like, look at what Christ has done in our lives? That our works were worthless, but his righteousness is worth everything? You know, his loss was our gain. And two weeks ago, Pastor Steve talked about this. I'm just going to quote Philippians 2, 6 through 8, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What I want you to get from this text is that what was deemed lost by man is actually a gain by God. And notice how it goes down from worse to worse to verse 7, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by death, obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. But notice, the passage doesn't just end there with the loss, with Jesus taking the L for us. No, it doesn't just end there. The story doesn't end because look at verse 10 and 11 of Philippians chapter 2. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That loss actually turned out to be our gain. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. He did the work that we weren't able to accomplish. He gave everything up for us. We, in our lives, we need to recalculate what we value in life. So what the test is for us, what do you value? When you take the scale out, what really matters to you? What is Christ worth to you? What can you not stop talking about with family, with friends? What do you cling to in times of need? What displays your greatest passion and joy? And I try to let my kids know that when I hear a teen get saved, I want to have a party in our house. Not just for my stupid chiefs, even though I'm thankful they beat Pastor Crompton's team, but I want to celebrate that what God is doing in the lives. That a teen got saved from a difficult background? Amen. Praise the Lord. That's what we should be getting excited about. That's what our joy should be in. That's our enthusiasm. We don't get excited about anything, about a life being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ that you all had a part of through your giving and tithes and offering to put snow camp together. That's amazing. That is amazing. Where do we find our worth and value? For some of us, it may be in our jobs. It's about getting that promotion and getting up that ladder and getting that respect and that attention. For some of us, we find our value and our worth in our children's achievements. Maybe it's in sports, or maybe it's in academics, and I know it because you go on Facebook and it's like, look at what my child did. And the way that you describe it, it's not just describing, oh, look what they did. It's kind of like putting like, hey, and you know, like, they came from my bloodline, so not the dad's, but you know, like, Maybe it's your entertainment, or maybe it's even your personal spirituality. You see, religious people do a lot of religious activities. Then what happens is they expect to get something in return. 
If they find that through their religious activities that they're not successful in their career, successful in their love life, successful in um, life in general, how do they respond? You see, a Christian counts everything as loss. Our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our families, our political or business successes, our very lives are compared as loss compared to knowing Jesus and basking in his righteousness. How do you know if this is true in your life, if you value Christ above everything? How do you respond to difficulties? Difficulties that pull you back, but then even in the midst of a difficulty, they bring you to God. If you respond in the difficulties and the trials and the struggles of your life, blessing God for him being near to you, then you get it. If trouble in my life helps me to get to know Christ better, may God be praised. If difficulties in my relationships make me dependent upon God and make me see him for who he truly is, a loving father who will never forsake me, may he be praised. If God doesn't allow my sickness to be healed, my child to be saved, my career to succeed, but I'm clinging on to him in prayer and clinging, and he's clinging back to me, may God be praised. doesn't mean we want difficulties in life, but we see them as opportunities where God lavishes his grace and lavishes his love upon us. You see, loss is gain and gain is loss. And now Paul is, talks about the ultimate gain of knowing Jesus, and that is to be united with him. Look at verse uh, 9. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, faith. In verse 9 through 11, what Paul does is he goes through three different aspects of salvation. In verse 9, he talks about our justification. In verse 10, he talks about our sanctification. And verse 11 is our glorification. And remember, I've said it before, but justification means being saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is being saved from the power of sin. And glorification is one day being saved from the very presence of sin. Being in Christ was the heart of Paul's theology, and his desire was to be in union with him and and to be clothed in Christ's righteousness. He knew his righteousness was dung, a dirty diaper. Paul was concerned with his standing with God, and righteousness means that. It's right standing. Paul wanted to know how to be found acceptable So he weighed the two ways of getting access to God, his works or God's grace. And as you sung in our song, our works, our unworthiness, God's grace. We know in the Bible where sin increases, grace increases all the more. What he found is that clinging to Christ's righteousness is everything. Garrett Kell writes in his book, Pure in Heart, this about our justification. On the cross, Jesus Christ was crushed for our sins. The innocent one was condemned for our sins. If you're trusting him, hear this. Jesus was righteous in your place. He was crushed for your filth. The certificate listing your failures that was nailed to wood 
is covered by his blood. When Jesus came out of the grave, he sealed our deliverance from this evil world and our hope for a better world yet to come. He has given us his spirit. The spirit of the living God lives within us to empower us against our flesh. So when your sinful flesh pulls you, think of Jesus' sinless flesh that was torn for you. When the world invites you, consider Jesus' call for you to heaven. When Satan allures you with temptation, think of Jesus' broken body given to free you from condemnation. When Satan points you to all the reasons you should be condemned, point to Calvary, where a blood-washed slate now declares, it is finished. Verse 9 is our justification, being rescued from the penalty of sin. But verse 10 is our sanctification, being rescued from the power of sin in our lives. Notice verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Paul wants to know Christ. And this word know is very instructive. It isn't only focused on a propositional truth. It's focused on a personal grasping, the personal reality of the truth. It's the idea of knowing that has to do with caring and having a regard and personal contact with it. Let me explain it in this way. Let's say that my wife, uh, let's say my wife is in the house and she hears that my daughter Layla is screaming. So my wife walks down the hallway and sees that Zay, Xavier has Layla's hair in his hand and is laughing. Okay, this actually happened. Um, so Amanda goes and pries Xavier's fingers off of Layla's hair and Layla's mad and saying, what's going to happen to Zay? And Amanda says, well, he's young. He doesn't know that it's hurt. He doesn't know that. So Amanda walks out of the room. This didn't actually happen. And before she gets back to the kitchen, let's say that she hears Xavier crying out in pain. She rushes back to the room and she sees that Layla has her hands in Xavier's head and pulling it. And she says, why are you doing that? Three-word response by Layla, he knows now. He knows now. You see, this knowledge is not learned at a distance, but it's up close and personal. So what is this knowledge that Paul wanted and wants us to desire? Paul wants us to have the knowledge, the personal experience. Remember, not just propositional truth, the personal experience of Christ's resurrection, the personal experience of sharing in his suffering and becoming like him in his death. What Paul spoke of in sharing Christ's suffering, he's talked about a parallel passage in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 through 11, which we won't turn there, but it's where we, the Bible says, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. He wants to know the power of his resurrection means that Paul wants to be like Jesus. What does that mean for you and I? Look at the deadness in your life. Look at the dead stuff, the flesh. Look at the anger that you have towards your spouse. 
the lack of forgiveness. Look at the bitterness that you have, the insecurity that you are finding because you're finding your confidence in what you do or what you look like or what you have. Look at the self-centeredness that closes your hands to be generous and compassionate. How is this going to be changed? One answer, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. You see, that word power is the word for dynamite. The resurrection power is the answer. The spirit of God takes over the decay in you and I, our lives, because Jesus Christ has rose from the dead. So we can now make it our ambition to please him. You need to understand this. You and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a new heart. He circumcised our heart. So what does this mean for us that we have the resurrection power living within us? If you're in a marriage, your marriage, you can have peace if both of you submit to Christ alone. You can restore what is broken because of God's resurrection power. If you're battling through depression, you can have joy even in the midst of your circumstances because the resurrection power is living within you. Do you realize this? The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives within you and I. It lives within you and I. You see, the things that you think that are immovable, your bitterness, your anger, your insecurity, your fears, it can be vanquished, it can be destroyed, it can be blown up because of what Jesus Christ has done. We can have boldness in our evangelism. We can have love to those that are unlovely. We can have wisdom. We can take criticism and not respond back. We can be humble like him. We can be courageous like him. We can be tender and kind like Jesus Christ because his power lives within us. His power lives within us. Oh, that we may know Christ more and grow to be more like him. But it's not only the resurrection power, Paul goes on to say that he may share in the sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul knows that if if he partakes in Christ-like suffering, he will become like Christ. Now, you would say, suffering? Like, really? Remember, Paul says earlier in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To know him and the power of his resurrection will also lead us to sharing in his suffering. You and I will find his suffering reenacted in our lives. But the thing is, if his suffering is reenacted in our lives, then we know his resurrection power is working within us. So that means we will be mistreated. We will be mocked. We will be ridiculed because of our faith. Teens, you will go through at times where you feel alone, like you're the only Christian at your school And you may be ridiculed because of it, but know that Christ has faced that ridicule and his power is working in you and it's going to stimulate growth in your life. Let's close with verse 11. Paul says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Is death the end? Is death the worst thing that can happen to you? No. No. At the cross, death is defeated and our life begins. And even if we were to die physically, you see that process of glorification comes to its end in heaven where we're reunited with our Savior in our resurrection body 
and we have been completely transformed. What I want you to know, ladies and gentlemen, is that loss, our losses, the difficulties that we face, but even our righteousness, the good things that we have are nothing compared to his righteousness. And we should rather leave you with this, take L's for Jesus because it's our greatest gain. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this day. Thank you again so much for our church, Lord, uh, just for their commitment to 180 Youth Ministry, their commitment to living for you. I pray, Lord, I pray that we can be a church that lives for you, that desires to live for you and to die for you because you're worthy of it all. We thank you for this day. In your precious name, amen. You are dismissed.